Welcome to Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival. We are broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg. We recognize our obligation as settlers on this land to work to repair the harms perpetrated upon Indigenous communities and acknowledge the ongoing trauma colonialism has inflicted and continues to inflict on First Nations, Métis, and Indigenous peoples. Thank you for listening and for donating. Your support allows us to continue to celebrate and spotlight great writing and important ideas. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. Our host today is author and journalist Nora Loretto. Nora is the co-host of the podcast Sandy and Nora Talk Politics and the author of Take Back the Fight, Organizing Feminism for the Digital Aged, and the newly released Spin Doctors, How Media and Politicians Misdiagnosed the COVID-19 Pandemic. Nora will be speaking with author and professor Jesse Daniels about her new book, Nice White Ladies, The Truth About White Supremacy, Our Role in It, and How We Can Help Dismantle It. Jesse's previous book is White Lies, and she is a faculty affiliate at the Harvard Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Professor of Hunter College and the Graduate Center, CUNY, in Sociology, Critical Social Psychology, and Africana Studies. She's an internationally recognized expert on internet manifestations of racism, and her writing on race has appeared in the New York Times, NPR, Forbes, and Newsweek. Here's their conversation. Hello, and welcome to this really exciting conversation. Uh, My name is Nora Loretto, and I'm thrilled to be with Jesse Daniels, who's a writer and professor based in New York City in the United States. And we're going to be talking about her very soon to be released, if not already released by the time people are listening to this book, Nice White Ladies. Jesse, hi. Hey, Nora. It's so great to be on with you today. I'm great. I'm so excited to talk to you. Awesome. I'm I'm excited to talk to you as well because reading your book felt, um, honestly, it felt kind of like a warm bath. It felt like I was in an analysis that is like so pressing and so necessary and so like yes, this is what we need right now. And I wonder, um, wh- how did it feel to write Nice White Ladies? Thanks so much for the kind words. You know, it's always as a writer, it's always so wonderful once someone actually reads your your writing. So it's just <laughs> so gratifying. Uh, what was it like to write it? You know, I I I would have to say there was a kind of pressing urgency in writing mm-hmm. this. I um, I connected with Seal Press in March of 2020, which you know, as we all know, is when we sort of went into a global shutdown with the pandemic. And, you know, it was shortly after that in the summer that followed, summer of 2020, when there were so many, you know, street protests, you know, calling for the end of police brutality and, um, you know, all of that in the wake of George Floyd's murder. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I was, I sort of was writing with all of that in my mind and, and around me. Um, so yeah, I'd have to say pressing urgency is, was the predominant feeling as I wrote. Mm. And did you have the sense, you know, you're writing in a pandemic. So did you feel kind of like removed from the world, which may have given you a bit more perspective or was it, even more difficult to write considering everything that was going on around you at the same time? 
Yeah, I have to say it was it was super difficult for me. I know that um, you know it can be annoying to hear from people who got things done during the pandemic, and I completely understand that that feeling. Um, but yeah, I just really had to shut off what what was going on, you know, and go into my little um, space, you know, more headspace than physical space to write. Um, and I just kept pressing on, you know, it was so, um, things seemed so dire, um, throughout that summer. Um, I just felt especially important to get this out in the world and to get it finished. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Reading the book, it, it almost feels like an encyclopedia of the last five years. Obviously you go past five years and, and there's quite a lot of history in the book as well, but it really did feel like I was reading a catalog of these very important flashpoints of white womanhood. So whether that was calling 911 or appropriating food or appropriating wellness, mm-hmm. uh, all of these stories that, you know, often went viral. And so, um, you know, despite the fact that you're in a different country, I felt very close to a lot of the, the issues that you were writing. Did, did that happen on purpose or was it through the research that you realized that telling the story of white supremacy and the, and the role that white women play in white supremacy through these flashpoint cultural moments made the most sense? Yeah, that's a really, that's a really great question. Uh, I had someone who was an early reader of the book say, you know, I noticed these things when they happen, but I hadn't really connected these dots. Mm. So for me, the book is really about kind of connecting dots. I think that, um, you know, one of the things I say about my, when people ask me how the pandemic has been for me, I, I often say, you know, I've been very fortunate. I never got sick and no one close to me got sick or died. And, um, and that's, you know, incredibly fortunate in these times. But, but the thing that has happened to me is I've sort of, I say I've lost my, my relationship to the time space continuum. Mm -hmm, (laughs) So I have a hard time. Like is today, is today Tuesday or Wednesday, you know, that kind of thing. But I also think that there's something about the moment that we're living in with social media and we're so saturated by all this media all the time that I think it becomes really hard to hold on to kind of points over time, you know? And so Mm -hmm. I think, I think for writers, it's especially important, even if people were paying attention to certain events when they happened, like you said, they went viral. So we all kind of knew they happened, but I think I see my role as a writer as sort of putting those points of time and those events into a broader context and sort of connecting them, you know, saying these events are connected to one another. And that's important for us to look at. Mm. So for anyone who hasn't yet read the book, and I hope everybody that listens to the podcast does get their hands on a copy, how how do you describe what uh, what Nice White Ladies is about? Yeah, my um, short answer is uh, about the role that we who are raised to be white and are raised to be women or femme identified contribute to white supremacy. And that is a very uncomfortable conversation to have. I recognize that. But part of what I do in the book, I I try to do in the book at least, is to sort of insert myself into the narrative, sort of talk about my uncomfortable moments, my embarrassing moments, and my struggles with coming to terms with my own 
nice white ladyhood, if you will, and the places that I've pushed back against it. One, uh, another reader who uh, looked at the book early on called it a gentle double dare. And I, I sort of love that description because that's how I think of it. It's sort of like, okay, here's what I've done. Now, what are you going to do, reader? Mm. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting because there's a, a moment in the book that you describe um, a student asking if you are a white feminist. Mm. And, and that is in a, in a section where you specifically look at white feminism. And I, you know, I was reading this and I was thinking, oh, wow, that, you know, I had the exact same question at um, my last event as well. <laughs> and I, you know, both of us are white women writing about white feminism and the, and the problems of white feminism. How do you situate yourself um, and, and deal with the contradictions and the implicity The I mean, I, I know some people will have guilt around that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure I've felt guilt. I don't know if you've if you felt guilt exactly, but explain a little bit about how you situate yourself as a white writer talking about white supremacy and the role that white women play uh, within it. Yeah, thanks. It's a great question. And I thank you. And, and also that young person in that, uh, that workshop that asked me that question. It's, it's a tough call, right? I mean, I, I mean, part of the point I make in the, in the book is, is right now it's kind of a weird and uncomfortable time to be, you know, to occupy the subject position, as we say in academia of, of being a white woman. And I think it, it can make us really uncomfortable. Um, but, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to go through graduate school in the, in the sort of mid 1980s into the early 1990s. And this was at a time when, you know, there were wonderful black feminist scholars and other women of color scholars who were doing that early work of laying the groundwork for what, what today we refer to as intersectionality. You know, it's a, a term that gets thrown around uh, a lot. And I think people maybe don't understand always what it means. But for me, what was so important about that early black feminist writing and what um, what helped me so much was to think about myself as, you know, someone who occupied a particular intersection of race, gender, and class. And, and further, you know, the, I was especially uh, influenced um, and indebted to Patricia Hill Collins, who I did a postdoc with when she was at University of Cincinnati. And, you know, she, of course, wrote Black, the book Black Feminist Thought. And part of what, you know, um, Pat Collins argues is that we who are writers and researchers have to do this work of positioning ourselves in relation to the work that we're doing. You know, she calls this positionality, which is kind of an academic word, but, but for me, it was super important and super helpful in navigating what it meant to be a white feminist doing this work. So my, my early work, my dissertation, my first couple of books were about, you know, people who were avowed white supremacists on the far right. And in the process of doing that early work, I discovered kind of by accident that my grandfather, my father's father had actually been in the Klan. And that kind of total surprise to me. Like I didn't know this, even though my father knew I was working on a dissertation about white supremacy. Seems Mm. like he might've mentioned it, but he never did. (laughs) Right. So, um, and my, my, my father and my my great aunt, who was part of that discovery, um, 
just minimized it. You know, they sort of blew it off. Like, oh, no big deal. People were, you know, people did that back then, you know, but I, because I had already been doing that research on white supremacy, I was shaken by that realization. And so when it came time for me to turn the dissertation into a book, I thought, oh, <laughs> I'm doing this work on the Klan and my grandfather was in the Klan. Like, what am I going to say about that? And so for me, Black feminist thought gave me a way to deal with that. You know, I, I wasn't an objective social science researcher. Like, the Klan could be good. It could be bad. No, I was, mm-hmm. I was a committed activist. I was against white supremacy. And yet I had this very uncomfortable family history that I had to deal with. So I wrote a preface for that dissertation that became my first book. It's called White Lies. And and that preface was very personal. You know, I, I talked about that discovery about my grandfather and some other personal things, but that that was really the beginning of me trying to come to terms with that. And then as time went on, I mean, I I think that dealing with sort of the kind of feminism that I was taught in graduate school and, and through things I was reading um, also really forced me to sort of reckon with race and my own, my own upbringing and my own uh, history and sort of uh, made me, forced me to make sense of it in a particular kind of way. So um, one of the stories that I tell in the book is, and this is both funny and embarrassing and true. Um, one of the stories I tell in the book is that I actually wasn't raised believing that I was white or I guess believing that I was half white. I thought that my that I was Cherokee because my father believed that he was Cherokee. I've since learned that he wasn't, um, but he did have dark hair. So right. it was kind of, you know, dark hair and high cheekbones and that's kind of enough, right? Um, but I grew up, you know, he grew up telling these stories about the Trail of Tears, you know, and I thought that our family had been on the Trail of Tears, you know, so I really identified with um, Cherokee people and that um, identity. And, you know, when Cher's um, song Half Breed would come on, my mother would turn it up and say, here's your song. So, um, you know, terribly embarrassing. But what it meant was that I wasn't um, attached to whiteness. Do you know what I mean? Like I didn't claim that as an identity. It wasn't something that I wanted to protect or felt strongly about. And, you know, by the time I got to graduate school, my, you know, mid twenties, I, um, you know, somebody handed me a copy of Custer Died for Your Sins by Fine Deloria. And then I realized, you know, that, oh, the Cherokee grandmother is a whole cliche. And I too mm-hmm. am a cliche. Um, but it was about the same time that I started reading Ida B. Wells Barnett, right? Her uh, Red Record, The History of Lynching. And I saw that this terrible campaign of racial violence and terrorism uh, enacted against Black people was really done in the name of white women. And none of the gender courses, the courses on women's studies that I was taking ever talked about that. You know, white women were kind of invisible in a way, even though we were the subject of the the classes that I was taking. So I've sort of struggled with that, you know, ever since then. And, And this book is really kind of the result of my struggling with this over several years. Well, it's such a um, insightful uh, set of stories and analyses and so many different aspects in society and politics um, that are current and that are uh, also historical that 
um, I imagine you're trying to grab the, the white women that don't see this still that, hey, maybe still think that they have Cherokee heritage in their family and, and, and say, no, like we, we need to wake up and we need to understand the role that we are actively playing in white supremacy. And, and when you think of it in that way, it's, it, it's so fascinating to think of, of how damaging feminism has been to so many women. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I say in the book is that, you know, feminism has both saved my life and it's broken my heart. And, and it really did save my life. I mean, my, um, I I grew up knowing my great grandmother, my grandmother, my mother, and none of them had ever finished school. And I, I mean, finished school, meaning they didn't graduate high school, you know, and I was able to go on and finish my bachelor's degree, get a master's and a PhD. And that was really, for me, was really because of feminism, that was possible for me, you know, but the, the other side of that is that there was also a real um, entitlement that was built into the kind of feminism that I learned that there was a way in which white women were, at least the way I was taught, were seen as kind of victims. And that uh, victimhood entitled us to a kind of analysis, you know, that has been pervasive and dominant in the writing about feminism. But, but like I said, I was very fortunate that I encountered these writings by Black feminists early on, and those really transformed me, you know. I think that, you know, thing, talking about my story and the sort of the, the funniness of sort of thinking that I was Cherokee, but the, the very serious matter of my grandfather being in the Klan, I mean, if you just think about those two stories, like one is much easier to talk about, um, you know, this idea that I was Cherokee, and I think that that speaks to a kind of like, you know, individual personal discomfort or discomfort with these stories. But I think we have to get more comfortable talking about, you know, we who were raised to be white women, talking about the legacy of the Klan and our families. You know, I have told this story many times now at this point, and there are so many white women that come up to me, you know, often after I give a public talk about this and will say, sort of, you know, sort of voce over to the side, oh, my, my grandfather was in the Klan too. And I think that we have to stop whispering about this. You know, it shouldn't be uh, a secret. We should come to terms with it. And I think that that's very difficult and very painful, mm. but also very L- necessary. Sorry. Yeah. Well, in listening the, to, to tell this from the perspective of, 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 of Canada, yeah. Uh, where um, race shifting is a serious problem in Canada, where people will claim Indigenous heritage or identity uh, with absolutely no right to do so to get access to different awards or positions or whatever. Um, but we don't have uh, that that kind of flash point moment. I know, I know the clan wasn't just a moment, but that, that kind of uh, unifying understanding of like, well, the clan, like that's the, that's the line, right? This is the line is either you were in the clan or you were not in the clan. And so in Canada, it's, it's interesting because it's a lot harder to um, reckon with people's history, I think, Mm -hmm. because um, there were different words used. Of course, the clan was active in Canada as well. um, But there's been a lot of work to erase um, even anybody's involvement in the clan um, to the point where, I mean, I, I grew up in a, in a small town that, that had clan marches in, in Southern Ontario mm-hmm. and um, people outside the town knew that our high school's mascot until 10 years ago was, the, was the rebels and the rebel flag. And wow. this is a, this is a town that has nothing to do with the United States. <laughs> 
case, <laughs> right? Like wow. it's completely, um, it's completely ridiculous, but, but a lot of it goes back to land um, and it goes back to land in the United States as well. But I, yeah. I think in, yes. in Canada, um, you know, the, the, the process of, of, of populating the land or clearing the land, we can see like right from the start when, um, the French colony was populated and women from France were just sent, they were called the, the daughters of the King and they were just sent to Canada mm-hmm. and they become the first women, white women in the, in the settlement and their subjugation, which eventually women in Quebec fought against, and that's the feminist movement, but their subjugation was key to the colonization of Canada. And so there's this really incredible interplay between uh, white women fighting for their rights to not have to be in the kitchen, to not have to have uh, 10 or 14 children, like was the case Mm -hmm. uh, in this province. Um, But as a that was part of the colonial project as well. And so often the connections between the mainstream white feminist movement Mm -hmm. and solidarity with indigenous communities or understanding colonialism mixed into that is very, very hidden. Uh, and 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 that then trips up a lot of of the organizing that happens in Canada, and and I, I have seen as well how, uh, trips up some of the organizing happening in the United States too. Yeah, I mean, you you mentioned land, and that's a really great um, that's a really great point. I think that white women have been part of the settler colonialist project, you know, both in in North America, in in both countries. I mean, in the United States, we had something called the Homestead Act, which was which was passed while uh, Lincoln was president, and it ended up over, and it was in effect until the 1930s in the United States. Over time, over those decades, it ended up giving two. Um, I wrote down the number because I went to remember it: two hundred and forty-six million acres to more than ten million white Americans. Now, this is at a time right after the end of slavery, and so instead of giving land to people who had been formerly enslaved, what the U.S. government did was they took land away from indigenous people and they gave it to white settlers. And part of the reason that they did that was that they saw and they believed that Indians were not using the land properly. And what they meant by that was not cultivating it for agricultural purposes, you know, um, and it's, it's deeply ironic in the United States because what happened after this land was given to white settlers and they did cultivate it, you know, agriculturally to grow, to grow things was that it, it's part of what contributed to the Dust Bowl mm-hmm. um, because it, it, the land was not meant to be cultivated in that way. And so it had this uh, had this consequence, you know, that left a lot of people um, homeless and without uh, without food, um, but but going through you know generations and decades, there have been researchers who have looked at what happened to those you know 160 acre chunks that went to you know millions of white Americans, and now what we know from people who have studied this is that you know that intergenerational wealth transfer that started with the Home Homestead Act of the U.S. government is responsible for what we now refer to as the wealth gap. Um, In fact, one researcher found that it was like 20% 20 of white American adults today, that's 46 million people, are descendants of those people who received those 160-acre chunks of land. And my family is part of that as well. Now, my particular story, excuse me, my particular story is that there was no generational wealth to hand down because my family 
pardon the expression, but they pissed it all away, <laughs> um, you know, easily in a generation. Um, but that I want to point out is another kind of privilege, right? To be given this kind of wealth starter kit from the government because they see you as more uh, worthy of this land, more entitled to it than the indigenous people that live there, right? And then to and then to squander that wealth in a generation, you know, it's a it's a particularly um, kind of colonialist story, I think. And white women mm-hmm. were right there; were right there, part of it. It's not. Um, I think I think it's no longer sufficient for us to just sort of blame all that on white men. Sure, they were the ones that held the most power, but white women were there shoulder to shoulder with white men in securing that wealth and trying to pass it on to their children. Mm-hmm. And the creators of those children too, yeah, absolutely <laughs> playing a very direct role. Yeah, it's it's so similar uh, to the Canadian experience as well. And you write about the inheritance uh, issue of of passing that those those huge sums of money. At the end of the book, you talk about some of some ways that white women can confront, uh, get involved, and resist and, and fight for change. And inheritance is one of those ways. Can you explain a little bit more about how you imagine? Uh, we target wealth, intergenerational wealth transfer as a as one of the solutions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you if you look at the problem of a wealth gap, I mean, the way that it's usually talked about, at least here in the states, I'll speak about my own context. But the way it's talked about in the states is that you know, and you'll you'll see headlines like this all the time: black families fail to keep up with white families. You know, so it's sort of like this deficit model that somehow black families are doing something wrong, and that's the reason that there's a difference in in wealth between white families and black families. But I want to turn that on its head and say that, you know, white families are hoarding wealth. And the reason there's a wealth gap is because white families keep perpetuating it. And the way that we perpetuate it is we create all white families. I mean, you can just look at the the dating uh, analysis, you know, the uh, there's a wonderful researcher, April Williams, who's looking at OkCupid data and sort of analyzing racial preferences on the dating apps. And there's a clear way in which white women prefer to date white men. Um, and, and that ends up creating all white families. And what do all white families do? They pass on their wealth to the next generation. That's the source of the wealth gap. So one of the things that I argue for in the book is a uh, divestment approach. You know, when I first started becoming politically aware when I was at UT Austin back in the 1980s and early 90s, the move to end apartheid in South Africa was huge on campus. And it was the the first political protest I went to. And I remember being really scared holding up my first political sign, you know, but it was very effective, you know, part. And if people who were listening were not around then or haven't read about it, it was a you know, there was a a racially um, uh, oppressive government in South Africa and the world community sort of came together to end it. And part of what we encouraged people to do was to not travel there, not spend money there. We uh, demanded that corporations not do business with South Africa. And it was crucial in ending that form of apartheid. And I would just argue that we have our own form of apartheid here in the United States, and that if we want to end it, we've got to find ways to divest from it. So we've got to find ways to to remove our support for this continued inequality and oppression. And one of the ways to do that is to refuse to 
you know, implicate our own families in the wealth gap by passing on inheritance to them. Mm-hmm. If people don't want to do that kind of individual action, then, you know, the alternative is a really heavy tax, you know, an inheritance tax, which there's a huge debate about here in the United States right now. But I mean, ideally, I'd like to see us do both. But, you know, if people don't want to do the personal, then they're going to have to do the, the taxation solution. Mm-hmm. One of the really interesting chapters in your book takes aim at wellness. And as I was reading it, um, you uh, you start about you start talking about something called clean eating. And it brought me right back to this moment where I was in high school and um, this girl gives me this ball of, of something and she says, this is a clean snack. And I was like, what the hell is that? <laughs> and, and it turned out her mom was one of the pioneers of the clean eating movement in North America. And her mom was practicing her recipes on her, on her daughter. And of course it came with a lot of advice, like don't eat it after six o'clock or you're going to get fat or don't eat sugar. You're going to get fat and this kind of thing. And, um, and so it was a little bit of a blast from the past. And, oh yes. I remember being introduced to this clean eating phenomenon from just this very random personal connection that I had, but I thought it was very fascinating how you tied that. Um, and a lot of other aspects of the, of, of wellness, uh, of, of health, of purity, of all these kinds of tropes that get thrown around and applied to uh, white women, um, and how they use them to further different kinds of oppression. Um, it was really, it's, it's such, it's such a critical analysis. And I really liked how you did it in a way that um, kind of got above the fray in some of the debates when they do happen online, they get a little bit too in the weeds and it's a bit hard to kind of sort through the different sides of the argument. So talk me, talk or walk me through a little bit about your uh, thinking in in talking about wellness and how white women uh, use wellness to maintain their status. Yeah. I mean, the whole wellness space, I mean, it's so fascinating to me. I think I could, I could do a whole other book just about that. But I mean, I first started hearing about clean eating and it it reminded me, you know, so much of the, I mean, just the language of clean when it comes to eating is so loaded, you know, it's so fraught and, um, and it speaks to, you know, you mentioned the word purity. And I, I really think that that's part of what's what it's about, right? If we if we engage in the practice of clean eating, then we ourselves would be will be pure, right? And then the the other language that gets used a lot in these wellness spaces is about a cleanse, you know? And it's just so um, telling, I think, because the 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 bulk of the marketing. It's not all of it, but the bulk of the marketing is really targeted to white women. So I was just so curious about why that is and what's what's going on underneath this marketing and and what's happening with this. You know, I mean, I, I talk a little bit about Gwyneth Paltrow, right, who was sort of the the icon of, mm-hmm. of all of this, you know, um, but it always seemed to it always struck me as really um very surface, you know, like there wasn't really much depth to it. So as I started investigating it, I mean, part of what I found is that the the wellness industry is really catering to a particular kind of white woman. And, and that's part of the story. But the other thing that I wanted to to uncover and talk about was the way that the wellness industry itself is really creating a particular kind of person, a particular kind of subject, we might say. Um, and that person is a is a white woman who, you know, 
who signs her emails light and love, um, but is <laughs> but is most comfortable in all white spaces, you know, and and the kinds of um, and there's a story in there about a, a something that went viral, like one of these stories that went viral a couple of years ago about a white woman who encountered a black woman in her yoga studio and just kind of has a hissy fit, for lack of a better term, about this black woman. And then she kind of, you know, has a little bit of sense and reflects on the fact that, you know, there is now one black woman in what is an otherwise all white space. And it, what it does is it makes her realize oh, I'm most comfortable in this yoga studio when it's only other white women. And I think that there's something about the way that wellness gets talked about. You know, part of what you're told when you go into one of these spaces is to, you know, let go of anything that's uncomfortable or makes you upset or causes you stress. And, you know, that's, you know, inequality. (laughs) Racism is in that category. Mm -hmm. So, So you're being invited into a space, right, that is usually all white women and, and you're being asked to not think about, you know, the world outside. And I think that, you know, given the, I think it's, you know, a multi-billion dollar business wellness is, and given that kind of uh, connection to it, I think it, it speaks to something that really is wrong with us. You know, we are unwell in various ways. And so what is it? I was trying to uncover what is it about white women that makes us so drawn to this shallow version of whiteness, to this very surface version of wellness that isn't about, you know, protecting us from breast cancer, you know, which kills hundreds of thousands of women every year. It isn't about, you know, changing our environment, which is toxic and often causes the breast cancer, right? It's not about those kinds of things. It's about this how can I feel better for a few minutes? And I, I end up equating it with retail therapy. You know, we live, mm-hmm. live under racial capitalism. And, you know, if you live under that system, it feels good when you buy something, you know, and that's the promise of capitalism to buy this thing, you'll feel better. And it's like for about 20 minutes that works, you know, and then you get the bill and nothing's changed except your money has left your pocketbook. You know? right. So, um, so I think that there's something about the wellness culture that is really both appealing to white women and is reinforcing this a particular kind of nice white ladyhood that needs care and attention. And part of what I speculate on is that, you know, our structural position in society is that we're, we're often managing up you know, to white men who may be in control at work or at home and managing down, I say in air quotes, to people of color who may work with you or work for you or in some way, you know, structurally subordinate. And I think that that tension takes a toll on white women if we're not conscious about mm-hmm. where we sit in society, you know. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I also think that the you know, the alliance and allegiance to white men, you know, frankly, I think that takes a toll on white women. Mm-hmm. Well, I wonder also how much uh, theft plays a role too, because the, the yoga example is a, a great one, but it's also a spiritual practice that doesn't come from North America. That is not a white spiritual practice from at the, at the base of it. And uh, throughout your book, you talk about a lot of other things that white women kind of steal, remix and turn into their own thing. Um, and I, 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 like, how much does theft play a role in, in, in constructing white identity? Yeah, we as white women are very good at theft. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, there are just ways in which, 
uh, being raised a white woman uh, teaches you at an early age that you are entitled to certain things. You know, you can claim ownership to things that are not yours. And I, and I think that yoga is a really great example of that. I mean, it's, um, you know, yoga is uh, connected to, you know, it comes from India. It's connected to Hindu practice, Hindu spiritual practice. And yet when it comes to the United States and, you know, and to North America, it gets denuded of those um, cultural markers, right? And, mm-hmm. and they only they only continue to exist in the smallest kind of way. You know, the, the prevalence of white women saying namaste, for example, is one mm-hmm. of those. Um, but, but the actual, you know, brown person who uh, started yoga and, and the majority brown people who practice in India are nowhere to be found in the current practice, um, practice of yoga in the United States. And there are lots of other ways that theft emerges as a theme in when you start sort of looking at white women. There's a whole chapter in the book called Love and Theft about, about these um, uh, incidents that sometimes get referred to as ethnic fraud. Um, so people will probably know the name Rachel Dolezal, who was a woman from Spokane, Washington, who was once elected as the president of the local NWCP chapter, a racial equity organization, and held herself out to be African-American, only to have her you know, white parents come through and say, oh, no, she's raised white. Um, and she is still claiming a, a, an African-American identity, even though she has no, um, you know, connection to that community beyond um, the people that she knows um, who are African-American. Um, so there, there's a way in which, and then there was the incident of Jessica Krug, a few, um, which happened in September of 2020, um, mm-hmm. who claimed to be um, Afro-Latina woman and, and was an academic and ended up having to resign her job because her, her fraud and her theft became public um, through some very brave Latina women who exposed her. Um, but but part of what I speculate on in the book, I mean, I don't, I don't know these people personally, and I don't know, you know, what may have prompted this, but, but these cases are so consistent. There's another one that I talk about a few years earlier, but these cases are so consistent in some of the features of them that I think, I think there's a pattern happening. And that pattern, I think, has to do with, you know, how uncomfortable it is to be a white woman if you begin to understand our role in, and complicity in white supremacy. So I, I think for some women, just a few, it becomes so uncomfortable that they want to find an escape hatch through another identity, you know? And so that's part of what leads them to, you know, claim that they are some other racial identity other than white. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as I mentioned earlier, that the phenomenon in Canada is much more white uh, people, white women uh, assuming indigenous identity in this phenomenon that here uh, is, is commonly called race, race shifting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Race shifting is really, is really interesting here in the United States. We have lots, you know, this came up in Rachel Dolezal's um, case. You know, she also claimed to have been born in a teepee and grown up there. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, who is a sitting Senator still asserts that she's native American, even though there's no evidence that she is. So, mm. you know, and the, I mean, the other thing to say here, right. About the claiming of um, indigeneity is that there is a, there is often, I mean, I'm not sure how is it, it is in Canada, but in the United States, there's often a kind of 
you know, there's a connection to some kind of new age spirituality that's connected with it. Um, there's a, a reference I, I cite in the book about people who claim Cherokee identity specifically saying, you know, I just felt like Cherokee was more spiritual than, you know, being white. And so that's mm. why they begin to claim this identity, you know, and as I talk about in the book, this was, this was my dad's thing. You know, he, he deeply believed he was Cherokee and it was like a, it was a feeling for him, you know, so mm. he thought that was his spiritual destiny was to be Cherokee. Mm-hmm, right. We are almost at the end of the conversation. And so I have one final question that might be a longer question to answer. I don't know, or maybe there's only two words to say at the end of this, but, um, you know, I, I, I was struck by, you know, the word nice is, is a very prominent word in the book. It's in the title. Mm-hmm. It appears throughout the pages. And, you know, as, as someone who's also just written a book about white feminism and feminism, mm-hmm. the word nice didn't enter my mind at mm-hmm. all. And it, and it wasn't until I hit, in your introduction, it wasn't until I hit um, this passage that I'm going to read uh, that I realized that, oh, I know why it didn't hit me. Um, and so I'm going to read the passage and, and anybody listening uh, who's from Canada will, I think, recognize himself in this and it will not just be white women. <laughs> um, so you talk about how Ellen DeGeneres, who, of course, uh, Mm-hmm. Uh, talk show host, um, and she often uh, puts herself forward as being progressive and uh, I don't know enlightened. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was widely photographed uh, hugging uh, George Bush or had her arms kind mm-hmm. of close to him or whatever, and you know was very criticized. And so when she was criticized for being so close to George Bush, of course, you know a war criminal. Um, she said, uh, you know, but uh, it's important that she's nice to people. And so you write. The fact is that DeGeneres' brand of kindness is really just about avoiding social confrontations and awkwardness by being nice to everyone, even those who have made the world a worse place. I know because I recognize this tendency towards niceness in myself. That could describe the entire nation of Canada. (laughs) (laughs) And um, and it's so ubiquitous that it is not a a characteristic that is gendered. That niceness in Canada, I think, um, is the interplay between Canada looking at the United States, whereas whereas white women in the United States might see them versus white men who are not nice. We look at the United States and say, whoa, we are we're not them. We're we're the nice version of of them. And I thought, wow, isn't that interesting? And so I wonder if you could just summarize uh, this this really wonderful conversation with that that niceness, the word nice and, and yeah. what it allows, what kind of injustices it allows uh, to take place underneath the label. Yeah, again, we could talk for hours about this, but I think the the short version is to say that there is a way in which, you know, nice white ladies like me, like my mother, get raised to, you know, to swallow in various ways, the things that we object to, you know, we swallow it through food, through alcohol, through drugs, um, through, you know, through binge entertainment, all those things numb us out. And I think that we've got to learn to stand up and say, we're not going to let these injustices continue in our, in our names, you know, in, in defense of nice white ladies, we must put an end to this. And so I think we have to stop being nice and start speaking up against white supremacy. Jesse Daniels, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Wonderful to talk to you, Nora. Thanks so much. That was Nora Loretto in conversation with Jesse Daniels about her new book, Nice White Ladies, The Truth About White Supremacy, Our Role in It, and How We Can Help Dismantle It. 
As always, I want to thank you for listening and for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. The only thing better than buying a great book is buying one from a great independent bookseller. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. I want to thank the Ottawa Public Library, the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm your host, Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening. Thank you.